Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much for coming. Is it just me or can people hear like a low hum, a disturbing low hum? <laughs> Is there something we can do about the low hum? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, it's so nice to see all of you. You're, you're living my dream life. My dream life is to do exactly what you do, which is live in Los Feelers and then go to Griffith Park and hike in the morning and then come back and write an amazing book in the afternoon. What you're doing is my dream life. Okay, so I'll just keep talking. Hopefully the low hum will correct itself at some point. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you the... Um, worst thing that I ever did. Um, it happened, my wife took me um, on a special occasion uh, to a country house hotel. Um, even though I don't enjoy country house hotels, my wife's always, she's not great at working out what to do with special occasions with me. Like there was a time she took me on, she set us like a special surprise treat. She sent me on a spa weekend. <laughs> even though she knows I don't like being touched. And, ah, woo. And um, while I was being massaged at the spa weekend, um, the masseur said to I, I was like awkward and I was trying to make conversation and I said and so I was talking about my terrible memory I said I can't remember anything about my childhood my memory is just completely gone and as she was massaging me she said well most people who can't remember anything about their childhoods it turns out once they recover their lost memory they were sexually abused <laughs> by their parents so I said well I'd remember that <laughs> um so anyway, my wife took me um, to this restaurant in this country house hotel and it took ages for the soup to come and I was shooting the waiter's paranoid, hungry glances and then finally the soup came and, and I began to eat it ravenously and my wife said, uh, John, see that girl on the next table? And there was a girl on the next table, about 14, sitting with her parents and Elaine said... I just saw her mimic the way you ate your soup. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, uh, uh, yeah, she did this impersonation of someone eating their soup disgustingly. And, <laughs> and I said, how did her parents respond? And she said, they smiled. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to the toilet. Um, I should tell, I am a... Um, I am a grudge bearer. I do, I do bear a grudge. Um, like, not so long ago, I woke up in the middle of the night realising I was still annoyed with the boys who threw me into Roth Park Lake in Cardiff in 1983. <laughs> so, is that an applause for... <laughs> oh, really? Wow. No one who even lives in Cardiff ever applauds Cardiff. <laughs> Are you the only person who has ever applauded Cardiff? <laughs> 
No, no, definitely not. I gave a talking card of recently, and during the Q and A, someone said that I was the only Welsh person who has completely lost their Welsh accent and affected a Northern English accent. I had nothing I could say about that. It's absolutely true. Um, so yeah, so I, I went on to Friends Reunited, and 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 I found one of the boys who threw me into Roth Park Lake in 1983, and I emailed him to inform him that I am now a best-selling author. <laughs> So he emailed me back and said that the reason why they threw me in the lake was because I was a pain in the ass, and the tenor of my email leads him to suspect that I haven't changed. <laughs> so that didn't work out how I'd hoped. Uh, so I came back from the toilet, and I saw the girl walking towards me on her way to the toilet, and it was just me and her alone in this grand hallway at this hotel and I thought she's so rude and the terrible thing is she she will never know that I know she mimicked me and then I thought I've got to say something to her but what I, I could be like insulting I could say it's not nice to grotesquely mime the way people uh, eat their soup and I see you hunched over your food frumpily and I don't mimic you and I thought no that's not right and then suddenly I knew exactly what to do I thought it is simple but devastating I'll catch her eye and silently do an impersonation of someone eating their soup disgustingly. <laughs> Not a word will pass between us, but she'll know. She'll know she's been caught out. I should tell you, all this happened in the space of about one and a half seconds. So we were six feet apart now. And I was suddenly incredibly nervous about the whole thing because it's combative and I'm really not a combative person. But I thought, do it, John. If you don't, you'll regret it. <laughs> and so I did. My heart was racing, but I made it look casual. <laughs> I, I looked her straight in the eye. I opened my mouth and rhythmically moved my hand up and down, up and down towards my mouth as if <laughs> clutching a soup spoon. And I thought, this is withering. And she looked startled. And then I realised that my impersonation of someone eating their soup disgustingly is identical to the way people mime blowjobs. I was... I should probably show you. It's incumbent on me to show you what it... So I kind of shot her a sort of defiant, like, defiant look. And then, and then went. <laughs> I, I was a um, middle-aged man miming a blowjob. I'll stop now. <laughs> anyway, I think the moral of this story is. By the way, um, that story isn't in my book, so you can buy it and not worry that you have to. <laughs> be re-triggered by that story. Um, I think the moral of that story is that shame internalised leads to horror, whereas shame let out leads to a funny story. <laughs> and also horror. Horror. <laughs>
It's, it's, this is quite an LA book. Um, in fact, somebody who is who's in the book is is here in the crowd. Uh, a gay porn star called Connor Habib. Where, where Connor? Hey, um, I. Um, Connor was incredibly helpful. He emailed, and it's really along these lines. It's the idea. One of the things I write about in the book is how our shameworthiness lies in the space between who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. And like with one of the people in my book, Jonah Lehrer, the, who's also an LA person, the pop science writer who was caught faking Bob Dylan quotes, his space between who he was and how he presented himself to the world was as wide as the Grand Canyon. And his shameworthiness was, was huge was enormous. Do people know the Jonah Lehrer story? This is, this is a guy, he, he, um, uh, he basically made up Bob Dylan quotes to suit the narrative of his book about the uh, neurology of creativity and was caught at it um, by a journalist called Michael Moynihan and um, when Michael said these, these quotes sound suspicious, like, what, like he quoted Bob Dylan as saying that creativity was just a hard thing to describe, it's just the sense that you've got something to say and Michael Moynihan reading this at home in Brooklyn thought when the fuck was Bob Dylan ever that helpful to journalists. <laughs> you know, it sounded like, you know, sounded like the Jonah Lehrer quote and not a Bob Dylan quote. So he emailed Jonah and Jonah did the very human but incredibly stupid thing of basically saying, no, my Bob Dylan quotes are accurate. It's history that's wrong. And... <laughs> Then the two men just went at each other. and It was kind of horrific, you know, the terror of being found out. We all of us have that terror. And also the terror of finding somebody out. When Jonah tried to apologise, so eventually he was disgraced, and when he tried to apologise, he did this other thing. He, 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 instead of like admitting, instead of like owning his faults, instead of narrowing that gap, it was just as wide. So he gave this apology speech, um where he was putting his flaws within the context of neuroscience, like I succumbed to the kind of flaws that only smart people succumb to. Um, and in fact, I've got a little clip, I'll play it, of Jonah trying to apologise. See, this was a public apology that was being live-streamed on the internet, and the Journalists Foundation, um, the Journalists Foundation that had, that had booked him to do this apology, uh, unbeknownst to him, had erected a giant screen live Twitter feed right behind Jonah's head. So anybody writing at home could, could like, tweet their ongoing opinion on Jonah's quest for forgiveness. And the, and the tweets were... I don't think the Knight Foundation was being, was being like, monstrous. I think they were being naive, and they, they didn't realise that we could be this, this horrific as human beings. Because as Jonah was trying to apologise... Let me show you this short clip. Here we go. If we are not prepared to deal with our mistakes, if we try to hide them away, as I did, then any error can become a catastrophe. This is what happened to the FBI forensics lab. So as Jonah continued to apologise, there was another screen uh, where he could see all the tweets like cascading into his eyeline. So as he was trying to apologise, we were writing, um, Jonah Lehrer boring us into forgiving him. <laughs> and Jonah Lehrer, imagine if you're standing up in court, imagine if it was an actual court and the murderer is trying to apologise and explain and the jury are yelling out, bored, <laughs> sociopath. That was... But a lot of it was Jonah's fault because of that space. And I was talking to Connor Habib about that space. And he said, I've, got a, I've actually got a quote from what Connor said to me from the book. Um, 
he said, um, um, Connor said that as it happened, he was a gay porn star, and if I wanted to know more about his work, I should Google him. <laughs> I did, and immediately saw many close-ups of his anus. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> I emailed him to ask how he managed to do that kind of work without feeling embarrassed. He said, I do think there's lots to learn from porn stars about how not to be embarrassed or feel vulnerable. He added that a lot of sex industry people go on to become hospice workers. They're not freaked out by the body so they can help people transition through illness and death. I'm not sure what would humiliate me at this point. If you want to talk at length about this, I'm open to it. Just don't make me seem any goofier than I already am. Maybe that's what could humiliate a porn star. <laughs> a John Ronson essay. <laughs> Anyway, Connor then hooked me up with uh, Princess Donna from The Kink. I was really interested in seeing how porn people managed to de-shame themselves and their community. So, um, and then Princess Donna invited me to a porn shoot called Public Disgrace, pretty close to here in the, San, in the valley, just like the other side. Um, and uh, so if any of you are Public Disgrace subscribers, I want to apologise because somewhere out there in the Public Disgrace world, there is a... Um, there is a porn um, film where a porn star is having her genitals electrocuted and at some point an owl-like tweedy journalist <laughs> with a notepad peers in. <laughs> which is going to be one of the oddest porn subgenres. <laughs> I should warn you if you ever want to attend a porn show... My God, it goes on for a long time because it was like one. I don't know if this is your in, true in your case, Connor, but you know, at one o'clock in the morning, I was at Weber's Sports Bar in the San Fernando Valley, just going, "Please ejaculate, so I can, <laughs> I can go to bed." I think now I must be like thousands of women before me. <laughs> Please just ejaculate. <laughs> anyway. Um, I love that about Twitter. I love the fact that in the early days, Twitter, like what Connor would say, is like a, was like a kind of place of radical de-shaming. People would just admit hitherto shameful secrets about themselves, and other people would say, "Oh my God, I'm exactly the same." It was like a, it was like a Garden of Eden, like a like a place of de-shaming. You know, connection with other human beings, empathy kindness, compassion, that's what heals. And that's what Twitter was in the early days. People would be really open and unselfconscious. There was a phrase back then, Facebook is where you lie to your friends. Twitter is where you tell the truth to strangers. And from that lovely place came a whole series of really powerful and effective and appropriate social justice shamings, like if a, if a, um, a right-wing columnist was racist or homophobic, we would, we would get them. And it was powerful and it worked. And I led some of these shamings myself. I led one against a Sunday Times columnist called A.A. Gill, uh, who'd written a column about how he'd shot a baboon on safari, because like all of us, he wondered what it would be like to shoot a person. So I alerted Twitter to this, because A.A. Gill always gives my television documentaries very bad reviews. <laughs> And I'm forever watchful for things he could be got for. Uh, I actually put A.A. Gill in my book about psychopaths, the psychopath test, um, because wanting to shoot a baboon on safari, because like all of us, you wondered what it would be like to shoot a person, is classic psychopath. Plus, giving my television documentaries very bad reviews is classic psychopath. <laughs> 
Um, I actually bumped into A.A. Gill at an um, award ceremony not long ago, and he came bounding over to me and said, I hear you've put me in your book about psychopaths. He said, I would never sue another journalist. So I said... You know how you wrote that column about shooting a baboon because, like all of us, you wondered what it would be like to shoot a person. I said, it's not all of us. It's not a normal thing to think. It's just you. (laughs) And he said, well, you don't hunt, so you wouldn't understand. So I said, I sell more books than you do. (laughs) So, thank you. So I won. I began to notice that the days between shamings felt like days, kind of frustrating days, like when we didn't have any privileged people to, to attack for misusing their privilege. Kind of frustrating. It's like a day without a shaming felt like a day, you know, treading water, picking fingernails. And so we kind of lowered our standards and started destroying people who you could only really conceive of misusing their privilege really if you kind of half closed your eyes and into that hothouse atmosphere walked a woman called Justine Sacco and I'm just going to, I'm going to before we open it up for questions I'm just going to very quickly tell the Justine Sacco story some of you may, may know it um she was a New York City PR woman with 170 Twitter followers, and she was travelling from New York via London to Cape Town tweeting little acerbic jokes to her Twitter followers like Can everybody see this? Okay. And then when she got to Heathrow, I'm going to move this over here a little. Can't. Um, Everyone can see that. When she got to Heathrow, uh, she thought of another acerbic little joke and tweeted it to her. 170 Twitter followers. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding. I'm white. So she chuckled to herself, got no replies, felt that sad feeling we all feel when the internet doesn't congratulate us for being funny, (laughs) got on the plane, slept, woke up in Cape Town. Straight away there was a text from somebody she hadn't spoken to since high school as soon as she turned on her phone that said, I am so sorry to see what's happening to you. And she looked at it, baffled, And then another text from my best friend, Hannah. You need to call me immediately. You are the worldwide number one trending topic on Twitter. So first there were the uh, philanthropists. Join me in supporting CARES work in Africa. In light of Justine Sacco's disgusting racist tweet, I'm donating to CARE today. Then came the Beyond Horrified. I am beyond horrified. Was anybody on Twitter that night? And do you remember Justine Sacco? Everyone on Twitter that night, Justine Sacco's tweet overwhelmed our timelines. And I thought what everybody thought, which was, you know, wow, somebody's fucked. And then... Then I thought, I'm not certain that that was intended to be a racist tweet, I thought. And in fact, when I finally met her a couple of weeks later, and believe me, she did not want to meet me, um, it was just too harrowing, you know, to talk about it. Um, She said, living in America puts us in a bit of a bubble when it comes to what's going on in the third world. I was making fun of that bubble. So that was what she was intending to do with that joke. If anybody um, was um, cognizant of those nuances, though nobody was letting on that night on Twitter, then came, it got a bit darker everybody go report this cunt 
and then the calls for her to be fired. If I can just get Justin Sacco fired, my day will have been well spent. Hashtag getting fired. Last tweet of your career. Sorry, not sorry. And corporations joined in, hoping to sell their products. Next. (laughs) And then came the trolls. I'm actually kind of hoping Justin Sacco gets AIDS, lol. Somebody, um, somebody else that night wrote, somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. Nobody went after him. It's like, we could only, it's like we can only destroy one person a night. It's too complex to destroy Justin Sacco, but also destroy somebody who's destroying Justin Sacco. That's too, in our primitive... That's too complicated. Justine was really uh, uniting a lot of disparate Twitter groups that night. You demented bitch. Retarded racist bitch. And then came her employers. This is an outrageous offensive comment. Employee in question currently unreachable on an international flight. And that's when the anger really turned to excitement. All I want for Christmas is to see Justine Sacco's face when her plane lands and she checks her inbox. Oh man, Justine Sacco's going to have the most painful phone-turning on moment ever when her plane lands. We're about to watch this Justine Sacco bitch get fired in real time before she even knows she's being fired. Well, bitch, how does it feel to be fired for Christmas? The furor over a tweet had become not just an ideological crusade against her perceived bigotry, but also a form of idle entertainment. Her complete ignorance of her predicament for those 11 hours lent the episode dramatic irony and a pleasing narrative arc. As her flight traversed the length of Africa, a hashtag began to trend worldwide. Hashtag has Justine landed yet? A Twitter user worked out exactly what plane she was on and linked to a flight tracker website. (laughs) It's kind of wild to see someone self-destruct without them even being aware of it. Seriously, I just want to go home and go to bed, but everyone at this bar is so into. Can't look away. Has Justine landed yet? Maybe the best thing to happen to my Friday night. Right, is there no one in Cape Town going to the airport to tweet her arrival? Come on, Twitter, I'd like pictures. Guess what? Yep, Justine Saku has in fact landed at Cape Town Airport. She's decided to wear sunnies as a disguise. So if you want to know what it looks like to have just discovered that not trolls, but hundreds of thousands of good, caring, empathetic people like us have just turned against you and cast you out into the wilderness, this is what it looks like. So I met Justine a couple of weeks later. By then I'd met the man who started the campaign against her, who's a Gawker journalist called Sam Biddle. Um, Somebody had uh, sent the tweet to him and he tweeted it to his 15,000 followers and I asked him how it felt and he said it felt delicious. And then I asked him how did he imagine Justine was and he said, I'm sure she's fine. (laughs) 
that's like all of us, right? We want to destroy people and not feel bad about it. Um, I cried out my body weight in the first 24 hours, she told me. It was incredibly traumatic. You don't sleep. You wake up in the middle of the night forgetting who you are. She released an apology statement and cut short her vacation. Workers were threatening to strike at the hotel she'd booked if she showed up. She was told that nobody could guarantee her safety. As she told me this, she started to cry. I sat looking at her for a moment. Then I tried to improve the mood. I said, sometimes things need to reach a brutal nadir before people see sense. And she said, wow. Of all the things I could have been in society's collective consciousness, it never struck me that I would end up a brutal Nadia. <laughs> anyway, I kept in touch with Justine over the year because I thought what I really wanted to do and what I think I have done is, is written a really anxiety-inducing book that <laughs> makes you feel... Like in the psychopath test, I think I played my anxiety disorder kind of for laughs. But in this one, it is funny. But also, I think people, a lot of people have told me that it's a really panicky experience reading this book because you feel what it feels like to be Joan Alera or Justin Sacco at that moment of exposure. Um, because I kind of figured, look, if we're going to keep eating the meat, at least we should know what it's like in the slaughterhouse. And so that's what I think I've managed to do in this book. Um, and... Things have gotten a little bit better for Justine now. She's got a new job, and my piece was, um, my book was extracted in the New York Times, and people were really nice about her, and that kind of brought her, kind of brought her back in. You know, if like, if there's nothing more traumatising as a human than to be cast out into the wilderness and told by hundreds of thousands of people, you know, you're worthless, you need to get out. Uh, there's nothing lovelier than being brought back in. Um, but Justine didn't want to talk to me one last time for the book, and. She said uh, she's got, she finally had a new job in communications and anything that puts the spotlight on me is a negative. And I wrote at the time, it felt like a profound reversal. When I first met Justine, she'd felt compelled to tell the tens of thousands of people who tore her apart how they had wronged her. But I think she now understood that her shaming wasn't really about her at all. Social media is so perfectly designed to manipulate our desire for approval. And that's what led to Justine's undoing. Justine's tormentors were instantly congratulated as they took her down, bit by bit, so they continued to do so. Their motivation was much the same as Justine's, a bid for the attention of strangers as she milled about Heathrow, hoping to amuse people she couldn't see. Thank you. Thanks. Does anybody have any questions? Hello. Um, you mentioned that in the early days of Twitter, you could share and you'd get that, that sort of letting out of secret, the confessional, and you'd be more necessarily judge, and then things change. And now it feels like something like what happened to Justine Sackville happens every other week, not every week. Yeah. And, and sometimes it does feel justified, and, and other times it feels like people take it a little too far. But do you have any hope that this is a phase that we're kind of learning how to deal with, or are we just not psychologically equipped to live very, very public lives on this scale? No, you know, I think it is a phase. I do, because... Um, <clears throat> I think we're basically good people. Human beings are basically good. I, like, I, like for this book, I talked to a guy 
Um, who had to walk up and down a sidewalk with a placard around his neck that said, I killed two people while driving drunk. Don't be like me or you'll end up like this. And he told me that he was terrified, you know, that this was going to be his punishment, that, you know, what would happen to him on the street. What happened to him on the street was that people would stop their cars and say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Um, things are going to be okay. Come with me to church. This was in Texas. Um, <laughs> and he said, that's what... That's what did it. That's what put him on the path to salvation. And now he runs a halfway house and he lectures in schools about the dangers of drunk driving. And it was the empathy and kindness of strangers which is what did it. So in real life, we're lovely. So that's why I think it's, it's got to be a phase. It's like we are toddlers crawling towards a gun. We don't understand the power that we have. And, but I think, with, I think two things have happened in the last couple of weeks that have started to change all of that. And one is is my book coming out and the other <laughs> and the other well I'm, that, I know that sounds grandiose but I'll qualify that in a second um, the other is, is Monica Lewinsky's TED talk which, which had a very similar you know, conclusion to my book and I noticed there's been a couple of shamings in the last week uh, like Trevor Noah the John Stewart's replacement on The Daily Show where it was just much more nuanced. It was like some people are saying, you know, these five tweets are disgusting and he should never get to... Um, and then other people are saying, oh, you know, I mean, like editorials were like saying, well, you know, in Monica Lewinsky's TED Talk and in John Ronson's book. And, and you know, but it was, just a, it was just a more reasoned, rational... I mean, his jokes were terrible. Justine's joke was terrible. But the point is, you know, for Justine's destruction to be justified what you have to kind of and Trevor Noah too basically you have to believe that we can spot clues to our fellow human beings inherent evil by some bad phraseology of a single tweet from like five years ago and that's not a tenable situation so that's why I think it's a phase, you know? And also, I think the other reason I think it's a phase is because I met a child therapist the other day who told me that pretty much every damaged child who comes to her now is damaged because of something that happened to them on social media. So I think, you know, eventually, we're all going to get shamed. And then we'll all stop doing it. <laughs> Any other questions? By the way, if you want to ask about anything else, not just this book, but like anything at all, that's totally fine. Hello. Yeah, Oh, yeah, the selfie women. I just wanted to make an opinion. There was one woman that, that tweeted an ironic selfie about taking a selfie out of fire and then got I felt I felt sorry for the selfie women. Like everybody else, I find like every right-thinking human, I find selfies abhorrent. But <laughs> uh, you know, the New York Post. I mean, what I thought about that. So it was the New York Post, right? And they had like, and it was a horrific. It was a terrible picture of all these women with a selfie stick and the fire in the background, and people are dying in the background. So, and the headline was, and it was in the East Village. Village idiots. Um, I, I would argue that, like, somebody else took a photograph in that moment and that person made money out of it. So, you know, it was, it was um, shame cells. The destruction of Justine Sacco, I, I spent a long time trying to work out exactly how much money Google made out of it because we sure as hell made nothing. Um, and the conservative estimate was that night 
out of the destruction of Justine Sacco, Google made $120,000. We're like intern shamers for Google. Um, so I felt, you know, it's hard. You know, even people who deserve it, once, once you feel the agony, it's, it's harder to join in. Oh, but the, uh, the ironic one. It's, you know, the fact is, it's like, since my book came out, I've had a number of emails from people saying, I'm going to send this book to my children to kind of, as a warning for them to not press send on a joke that could be misconstrued. And when I got those emails, I, I felt kind of conflicted. I thought, on the one hand, I'm really pleased that everybody's buying my book for their children. <laughs> and on the other hand, I thought, I'm not sure that's, like, I don't, why do I not feel comfortable with that? Like, because they're doing the right thing. And then finally, it sort of hit me. This is a pretty sort of Baroque um, uh, analogy. But I suddenly thought, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of a policewoman got into really bad trouble in England a little while ago because she tweeted, girls, it's Saturday night, don't wear short skirts. And she was rightly attacked for that. It's victim blaming. It's like if somebody writes a liberal joke that's misconstrued, and I would say deliberately misconstrued. I mean, I think I can't be the only person who understood the nuance of Justin Sacco's joke. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think the behaviour change should come for the people who pile in. You know, because we're the ones with the power now, and it's incumbent on us, given that we're the ones with the power now, to be judicious. And to understand there's a difference between people who deserve it and people who don't. You know, given that we are the ones wielding the punishments now. I'm really glad, by the way, you're putting up one hand at a time, because I always get really flustered if two hands go up at once. I would make a terrible Sophie. Oh, no, there's two, three hands. Ah, I'm overwhelmed. Um, I would make a terrible Sophie in Sophie's choice, I realise. I'd say, um, kill both my children. Hi. Um, I wonder if you have any thought or general comment, given your amount of research and exposure on the subject on HBO's recent documentary on Scientology, and if you think that it will have any kind of structural effect on the foundation of the institution. Hmm. I, I, I watched that documentary like two nights ago, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, personally, I think... Um, I mean, I, I knew this actually myself, and it was really good to get the figures, because spent, I've spent a lot of time inside Scientology buildings when I was writing The Psychopath Test. And, <laughs> um, you know, they've got a crack team of, of, um, of Scientologists who are out to destroy psychiatry or wherever it lies. And so I, I, they kind of befriended me, and I befriended them. They got me into Broadmoor to meet Tony, if anybody's... You know, they kind of started the journey that became The Psychopath Test. So plenty of times I, I got to go inside Scientology buildings, um, and there was never anyone there. Like these, like, um, I realise I'm in Los Feliz, so the chance of there being Scientologists in the audience is very high. Um, but there was never anyone there. It's like they have, a, they seem to have a, an enormous amount of money, and according to the Alex Gibney documentary, less than fifty thousand active members. Um, so I kind of think it's it's crumbling from within. Thanks. Hi. Any chance to reach out to Michael Richards or anybody in the standard community that works in like professionally provocation? I did. Yeah, I did reach out to Michael Richards, and he said no. Um, 
I, I, I still harbour hope, actually, like for a future project. That I, might. I mean, Michael Richards was so interested because he was so laid low by it for so many years. And I just really, and I, I was honest with him, like, like, I really want to meet you because I want to know why it, it just broke you down. So, you know, you seem to have fared worse than almost anybody. And, and maybe that was a bad sell. Um, <laughs> it reminded me of when I interviewed, when I've emailed um, for the psychopath test, I emailed um, uh, the Enron people and Bernie Madoff and said, can I come and interview you in prison to find out if you're a psychopath? <laughs> um, and I got like, no replies. And then I had to change tack and, and say, I, can I interview you because I believe you may have a very special brain anomaly that makes you fearless and interested in the predatory spirit. And that's how I ended up getting corporate psychopaths to talk to me. And it just, you know, it's, it's the irony of the fact that one of the items on the psychopath checklist is cunning manipulative isn't lost on me. <laughs> Hi. Yes, um, going back to how... This, this, this type of shaming on social media might be a phase or not, right? Um, to me, it looks like just a natural outgrowth of certain you know, social predilections of how we understand agency. Um, but it's undeniable that the, these technologies, you know, cell phones, social media, they're connecting people who haven't had access to global markets or, you know, like conduits of transportation or whatever beforehand. So it, still, the, the mediums that we're using these things with have some positive... Oh, no, no doubt. But the, so the thing is, shouldn't... Might the phase, then, or what would you think about the phase being one of just how capricious we are with these technologies and how um, how serious they... It, or the prolific level of how much we tweet and post and we create these commodified agencies of our, of our identities. How, like... Sure. That tempering down, because frankly, I don't see. Yeah, I think possibly. I think um, I think possibly. My 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 son's I know, I, my son's here, and, and he's barely on social media, and you know. Um, uh, so I think you know. I think people are beginning to think, Christ, you know, if, if things don't calm down, it's, it's just better to be away than than on it. Um, yeah, and people are getting catfished, and, and you know, all these terrible things are happening. Actually, my friend Maeve Higgins did say to me the other day that she would rather be emotionally manipulated by a stranger on the internet than come face to face with an actual catfish, because they, they look kind of horrendous. Um, but yeah, but of course, the positive side of it is, you know, it goes without saying, it's unbelievably positive. I mean, and it helps me and it helps everybody. Like, if something bad is happening to me in my everyday life, it's really nice to go onto social media. I mean, the good thing about the mutual approval machine and you know the echo chamber is that you surround yourself with eloquent funny people and it helps so yeah hi um, do you think that the media because um, I know like because Gawker sort of perpetrated the Justin Sackler and I know that I read an apology I think actually mm. I think there'll have to be a change. The, the reason why Gorka apologised, Sam Biddle, the guy who started the campaign, he was at the end of his own shaming campaign, and uh, he, he tweeted, bring back bullying. And um, so he was shamed. And then he took Justin Sacco out for dinner and apologised to her. I have, a little, I have a sneaking suspicion also that he knew my book was about to come out and he wanted to get in there first. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so that's why he apologised to her. I guess, you know, the media will stop. I mean, I, th I think we all know, you know, that 
turning our fellow human beings into these kind of, into the worst thing that they ever did, into these kind of one-dimensional demons, this kind of, you know, cold, judgmental, unempathetic way of dealing with our fellow human beings um, is, is sort of shallow and wrong. And we do it on social media, and we do it in the mainstream media, and it's like the default. I, and I kind of think, actually, you know, when you, I've, I've come to this realisation personally, like 25 years ago, I'd do that to people. But then when you realise that actually making a full, rounded, empathetic portrayal of somebody doesn't make your story worse it actually makes your story better. It's richer and more nuanced, and people like it. That's what people like. I think, you know, when that spreads, um, that'll become more prevalent. Hi. I'm always admired and appreciated how empathetic you are to some people who might not Yeah, I'm still in touch with David Icke um, to this day. He actually asked me to be a character witness in his libel trial a couple of months ago. Um, This is because David Icke... um, People who don't know, I write about him in my book, Them. Um, he believes that the, that the world is being secretly ruled by giant, blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizards. And then the reason why I wanted to tell his story is because the Anti-Defamation League and various other anti-racist organisations uh, came out to say they were convinced that when David Icke said blood-drinking, child-sacrificing, paedophile lizards, he was using code, and what he actually meant was Jews, uh, to which David Icke said, no, honestly, really, I mean lizards. Um, <laughs> the ADO said, well, that's code too. And I just thought that was really funny that, you know, the crazier the, the conspiracy theorists and the extremists get, the crazier our responses towards them. And, and I followed David Icke to Vancouver where he was doing his kind of lizard tour and the anti-racists were trying to get his books you know, seized and incinerated and they were getting like his interviews cancelled and it culminated in um, it culminated in um, uh, them launching a custard pie attack, just like in the new book, a custard pie attack at this book signing because they thought the pie would hit his face and then he would be like so humiliated that he would just be pompous in front of his fans and that would show everybody what an idiot he was so that was the plan um, but the pie missed him completely and hit the children's book section. Um, so um, it really backfired. Um, anyway, one of the people who was involved in organising the pie attack then sued him for libel, so he asked me to be a character witness. I was really glad that, the, that they settled out of court because I'm sure that the, uh, that the attorneys would have found a way to have blamed me for everything. Hi. <laughs> um, Right. 
Yeah, no, I, I do, I do. I mean, I met a judge in the book called Judge Ted Poe, who like sentences people to these incredibly ostentatious public punishments, including the the placard man. And you know, I like like most people, I thought, God, this guy's nuts. You know, he's like a kind of Texan judge, and he's friends with George Bush, and he sentences you know people to these kind of narcissistic punishments. And and so I went to see him, you know, really expecting to 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 damn him, frankly. And I thought we would learn. I thought you know we're becoming like him. So I write all of this. I'm very honest about this in the book. You know, we're becoming like him. So let's show, you know, us who we're becoming. But he turned out to be kind of, kind of impeccable in this really kind of annoying way. They didn't help my thesis. And, and, and it's because, you know, the guys would say, you know, it saved my life. You know, wearing that placard saved my life because people were so empathetic and kind to me. And it's empathy that heals. Um, and I suddenly realized what I'm hearing all of this is that, you know, we're not as bad as him, we're worse than him because there's no due process. Like when Joan Alera tries to apologise in front of a Twitter screen, we're all like, um, you know, bored, sociopath, tainted as a writer forever, so there's no concept of re-entry in our, public, in our social media punishments. Um, and there's no empathy. Nobody was saying to Justine Sacco, nobody was saying to Justine Sacco, things will be okay, come with me to church. In fact, you know, um, a new statesman writer in England called Helen Lewis reviewed my book and said she was on Twitter that night and she thought that the joke wasn't supposed to be racist. So she tweeted, I'm not sure this joke was supposed to be, was supposed to be racist. And she said immediately a whole bunch of people said, well, you're just a privileged bitch too. And so she said to her shame, she just shut up. Yeah. And what that is the opposite of, you know, instead of listening to other people screaming them out, that's the opposite of democracy and justice. Hi. Right, yeah, I thought this was so interesting. So there was a mass shaming happened up in Kennebunkport in Maine, where 68 men and one woman, one woman were all named as being the clients of a prostitution ring that was being run out of the local Zumba studio. But, uh, um, so I thought, this is amazing. This is like a well-stocked laboratory for me. Like, who's going who's gonna, to, like, survive? Who's going to be destroyed? Like, what behavioural differences? Because I was really interested in, like, you know, why did Joan Alera like, do so badly, whereas other people did, did well. And so I thought Kennebunkport would provide the answers. But, you know, it turned out, to cut a long story short, nobody was shamed. Like, nobody cared, except for one person. Of the 69 clients, the only person who was mocked was the woman. Yeah. So if you're going to be in a scandal, you want to be a man in a, in a sex scandal. Mainly, I would say, I'm not just uh, blowing smoke up Connor's uh, ass, which I'm very familiar with, um, but I think to a large extent, because of the sterling work that's being done, you know, by people like, like Connor and Princess Donna, who, who taught me to think. It's like they're de-stigmatising de strange sex. 
and it's really helping people who are in a sex scandal. But and then Monica Lewinsky gets a standing ovation at TED. But I was thinking, I bet half the people giving Monica a standing ovation at TED would still happily tear apart the equally innocent, as far as I'm concerned, Justine Sacco. So we've still got a long way to go. But I think that's the reason why, and the reason why the woman was shamed and not the men is because there's just a vast amount of baffling misogyny in the world. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there's a whole bunch of questions, but I'm worried about boring people. It's 25. Should we, should we, should we do like another five minutes? And then what do you think? I'm going to say something like that. And then, um, what I, I, do you want to? And then I'll come here. Yeah. I wanted to ask um, have you found anything about um, the, uh, the public shaming being like a contagious, um, you know, like. Right. It's like, it's like a phenomenon. Because I wonder how many people were truly offended by the joke. Mm. I'm really glad you asked that question. This is a question about contagion, like what was going on on Twitter that night? Was it like, was it, was it contagion? And a lot of social scientists talk about contagion. It happened to us when we were living in London. There was a riot in London in 2011, the London riots. And it seemed like people went crazy and they were smashing up shops. And all the, all the social scientists were on the news saying, it's like, you know, this happens in every riot. It's called contagion. It's like a virus where people are just un- they're incapable of rational thought. They get lost in the crowd. And all this goes back to a French social scientist called Gustave Le Bon, uh, who was good friends with Hitler. And um, um, actually, no, Hitler was a fan of his, and so was Mussolini. Um, and the idea is that, you know, human beings just lose their capacity for reason in a crowd and become like, it's like a virus, uh, or like grains of sand being whipped up at will. And it was terrifying. We were sitting at home thinking, because the riot was getting like closer and closer to our house. It was in Camden and then it was in Kentish Town and the only thing separating the riot uh, from our house was a, was a steep hill called Highgate West Hill. Anyway, and we were like locking the doors and staring at the TV and all the experts on the TV were like going, it's like, a, it's like madness, it's group madness, it's a virus, they're infected by a virus. Um, it's like the violent version of the Mexican wave, they're just, they're completely swept up but we're thinking, fuck! And then, <laughs> and then the riot stopped at the bottom of our hill because the rioters made what we can all you know agree is like the extremely lucid clear-headed decision to not bother going up the hill um so that is a real mark against contagion right if it was a, if they were crazy they'd have carried the they would have carried on up the hill but they didn't so i don't believe in contagion actually um what i believe in is it's 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 like this uh, desire to be seen to be good, empathetic people. It's a little bit like the Milgram experiment in that, you know, we're so desperate to show that we're good people to authority figures. But on Twitter, who are the authority figures? It's the, the people that we follow and the people who follow us. It's the people who approve us and we approve and it's verified celebrities with stupid expressions in their avatars. You know, that's the people in the white coats who are pressing the buttons to impress these days. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's the kind of, you know, I think it's the desire to be seen to be good, empathetic people fighting the good fight. And many times it is fighting the good fight, which is um, compelling people to act in these incredibly unempathetic ways. Hi. Oh, what does it mean to be catfished? If you give me your email address, I will catfish. Um, 
Basically, it's um, catfishing is this phenomenon where somebody pretends, for whatever reason, it's usually sexual um, uh, manipulation, somebody will pretend to be somebody that they're not on the internet. And, you know, they'll say, here's my photograph, and it's some kind of beautiful woman or very handsome man, but actually they're not. It's like a lie, and they're pulling you in. Yeah. Hi. different types of responses to different kind of shamings, like different transgressions. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, I, I should probably, unless somebody's got like something that will lead me to like a really funny punchline ending, which maybe sort of head towards the end now. But, um, um, yeah, because the power is in our hands. Like, why do people not get destroyed in sex scandals nowadays, unless you're a woman? Because um, nobody cares, because the power is in our hands now. So what is shameworthy now? It's something that's a more important transgression than a sex scandal. It's the misuse of privilege. But the problem, of course, is that, you know, people like Justine are getting caught up in this collateral damage. Um, And collateral damage, I don't think, is... I had, a, I had a big argument, a sort of on-air argument with, with uh, Jesse Thorne today about whether collateral damage is appropriate or not. And I was like going, I don't think collateral damage is, is appropriate. No, I don't, we don't support collateral damage in wars, so why do we support it in our war on social media? And Jesse Thorne was saying, no, 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 you know, when you're fighting privilege sometimes, a bit of collateral damage is appropriate. And I thought, of all the people in my interview schedule, like, when I'm going down the list, I didn't think Jesse Thorne... Dawn would end up being Malcolm X. He's like the whitest man in the world. Um, but um, I, um, I, um, but that's the reason why. Like, if you commit something that's is seen to be a misuse of privilege, that's that's what gets you nowadays. You know, for good or for ill. Is it like a last question that will lead me beautifully into a funny story? So everybody ends on a high. What were the top tips that you learned? Okay, what is okay? Thank you for that attempt, but um, but unfortunately, it's going to end badly. Yeah, it's like how do you like if you are shamed? How do you survive a shaming? Uh, I can see why you think this would lead to a happy ending to the talk. Um, When the Justine Sacco extract happened in the New York Times. Like lots of people said to me, you know, you know, you're you're so compassionate and it's so great that you're treating and lots of people said to Justine, I can't believe those people did that terrible thing to you. Like nobody said I'm so what we did like everybody was going like those people over there did to you. Um and then there was a kind of backlash and about two hundred people all tweeted me at once and I think they all kinda knew each other and they were basically saying, So what what racist is John Ronson going to put his cape on for next? And I wrote one thing. I said, by the way, the Justin Sacco extract in the New York Times is uh, its not a standalone article, it's an extract from my book. That's all I wrote. And then a whole bunch of people went, um, oh, now John Ronson's saying it's an extract from a book. Like, what the fuck does that mean? It was always an extract from a book. <laughs> but anything I say in that moment is like evidence for the prosecution. So all you can do in this situation when you're being shamed, even a mini-shaming like that one, is to just be absolutely silent. Um, So the happy ending to this is that in this surveillance society that we have created um, for ourselves, which is damaging all of our children, uh, if you want to survive, 
the only thing you can do, which is like the opposite that you want to do as a human being, because human beings are social creatures who want to explain and connect and empathise, is to either be silent or be bland. Um, if you want to survive this world we've created for ourselves, either limit your tweets to cats and ice cream or just shut the fuck up. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.